we give you praise, Lord. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Oh, glory to God. Hallelujah. Nothing's too hard for God. Nothing's too difficult for God. Hallelujah. Boy, that excites me. How about you? I know I've got things to overcome in the flesh, whether it's attitudes or, you know, different beliefs. I don't want any black dots. How about you? Hallelujah. Thank you for your enablement. Well, you may be seated in the presence of God tonight, for he is here. And we're going to dismiss those who are going to Children's Church. Of course, Pastor Brenda is, she's back in Branson still. She'll be coming home tomorrow. And she's, oh, if you've seen the pictures on Facebook, that little one is so precious of James and Esther. Little Eden, she's just so sweet. So she's going to be coming home and then probably going down to Costa Mesa to John and Lindy's as they're going to be delivering soon. So two little girls, isn't that awesome? So Pastor is taking the night off tonight. That's wonderful. Because that means I get to be here with you. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Tonight we're going to talk about vision. Vision is sight of another kind. You know, we have vision with our eyes and we can see some things. But the vision that God grants is spiritual insight. Spiritual insight concerning the future. God's vision for the future is bigger than you. God's plan, will, and purpose for your life is bigger than you. It's bigger than your hands. It's bigger than your abilities. It's bigger than your strength. It's bigger than your resources. Vision is the prophetic voice of God. When, uh, not if, but when God gives vision or sight of another kind, it is God speaking to you, calling you to the vision. Will you heed the call? Let's look at what the Word says about vision. We know one thing the Bible says is that without a vision, people do what? They perish. They don't have something to aim for. They don't have a goal. They have nothing before them. They stumble. Let's turn to Baca. We're going to look at chapter 2 and verses 2 through 4. We're going to start off here talking about vision before we get to the heart of really the message tonight. So... Verse 2, it says, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tablets, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. 
I think that verse is there because, you know, sometimes if we think we can't do something, we get very proud about it. God shows you a vision. And you think, how is that going to be? Thinking of Mary. How shall this be? Well, I'll tell you. It's the same response Mary had. It will be by the Holy Spirit. By the resources of heaven. And what we need to say is, again, Lord, here am I. Use me. Now, we can see here that we need to do three things. We need to write it. We need to read it. We need to run with it. So we write it down. We make it clear. That means it's easy to understand. So that they that read it can do what? Run with it. You know what? That includes you. You need to go back. And you need to look at the vision that God gives you. He'll give you a vision for your personal life for your relationships, for the things he's called you personally to do, for your finances. You know, that was one of the things that we pastor had us do here. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But God will give you a vision for your life, and then he'll give you a vision for the church that you are a part of, that company. Then he also has a vision for the body of Christ, corporately. He has a vision of what he's going to do in the earth. It says that if you write it down, you see, many times, again, this vision is bigger than you, and if you don't write it down, you'll get distracted and start looking at other things. But you've got to keep your eyes fixed on what God has said to you. If they're not fixed on what God has said to you, you'll be wandering, you'll be wavering, you'll be in the wilderness, and that's not the place to be. The other thing about the vision is it needs to be motivating. It needs to speak and inspire other people. Again, it says, number one, we have to receive it with patience. Hebrews 6.12, through faith and patience, we do what? We inherit. We receive the promises. The New Living Testament says it this way, faith and endurance. It takes some endurance when you're walking out the plan of God and the vision that God has given you. God has given a vision for this church. And remember, when was it, um, Terry, back in when, 80s, when Brother Hagin spoke that the vision shall be fulfilled? He said, you're doing good, but you could do better. And you will, because God will help. And the vision shall be fulfilled. So we've held on to that all these years. God has a vision. He has a plan. He has a purpose. So, again, we have to have patience as we walk through it. We have to receive it. You've got to receive what God shows you in your heart by faith. There is an appointed time is the next thing that we see in that passage of Scripture. An appointed time. That means there's timing to things. There's a time, you know, there's always our time, which our time is, I want it now. But then there's God's time. And God's time is perfect. So you got to know the timing, the appointed time. When God, with God, there is always more. There's always steps in the vision. 
God will increase the vision in your heart. He'll give you steps. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So he he doesn't have you just always stand down here and jump up to the top. I mean, you might fall and stumble. He'll give you a step to take. And as you take that step in obedience, I mean, you put your foot down on it and the waters depart. Then you take the next step and you watch what God does. So it's steps of obedience, steps to fulfilling the vision that God has placed within your heart. Sometimes there's delays. It says it tarries. This, again, is a time when you've got to go back and you've got to look at the vision again and keep it before your eyes so that, again, you can run. You know, when running with a vision and you have success, success is achieved, People begin to take their hands off the wheel, so to speak. Now, you've got some success. Oh, this is good. And before you know it, there goes the vehicle, and you're over here. Then other times, when success is delayed, they tend to overcorrect. And that's not good either. In Andy Stanley's book, Making Vision Stick, he says this about vision. Vision is about what could and should be in the future. The life is about what's happening this very minute. So we've got to keep our eyes fixed on what God is saying. And then lastly, it says in that passage of Scripture, fulfillment will be certain. It will come. Any God-given successful endeavor, however, must be founded on some things. They must be founded in and on prayer. Prayer is so important. It's the foundation that must be laid. You know, if you're going to build a building, you're going to build a home, you're going to build anything, they lay a foundation. That foundation is made up of what? Cement. What is cement? Cement is simply rock. Rock. The foundation or rock for God's vision is his word, which is his will, prayer, faith, and thanksgiving. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. It's exhorting us here, church. It says this, first of all. Now this is talking about laying a foundation. First of all, there's got to be what? Supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks to be made for all men and for every endeavor. Now notice, it talks about one, two, three, four different things there. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. It's like, you know, socks and shoes. They both have to do with feet, but they have a totally different purpose. And that's how these things are that are laid out there. And one of them that I want to highlight tonight is supplication. What is a supplication? Because it's even listed first, supplications, prayers, intercession, giving of thanks. What is supplication? Supplication is an urgent petition to make an earnest request or entreaty. Earnest means to be intent with a direct purpose or to be serious or determination about some things. Entreaty means to beseech with great 
intensity. A supplication or a petition in prayer, or even in the natural, is a formal request. It's something that you write down. You know, like we just discussed, writing down the vision. It's something that you must have thought behind. It must have purpose. Again, that's why pastor's having us do this. This is talking about financially, in your life, writing three things down, writing a goal, praying over these things. What you owe. What's the plan? God will show you. With men, sometimes these things are impossible. But I'm telling you, with God, all things are possible. You can be debt-free. But you've got to work the principles and the disciplines. God's not going to wave a magic wand over you and let you go charge anything you want and then believe God for it to be paid. That's irresponsible. God is not going to reward irresponsibility. But he will give you a plan. And he will give you provision to meet your need. But you've got to seek him. And you've got to get it from him. And what works for Maria isn't going to work for Helen. And what works for Helen isn't going to work for Steve. And what works for Steve isn't going to work for me. Why? Because we're individuals with different situations in our life. And we need the plan of God for us uh, personally. The Bible says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So a supplication could be something that you write down. And you could, it could say something like this. On this day, and you put the day down. I come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy to help in a time of need. According to the word of God, I release my faith and I stand on the word and you put your scripture there. I speak the word concerning this matter. You've got to speak it. Faith has to be in two places. It's got to be in your heart and it's got to be in your mouth. So you begin to speak it. And then you begin to say, I receive the wisdom and insight of God concerning this matter. I will see and I will know what to do, when to do it, how to do it, what to say, when to say it. Amen? And then, in Jesus' name, I declare it. And I give thanks for it. With thanksgiving. Glory to God. You're thanking him because you know that if you, if you have prayed the will of God, that he has heard you, and you can be confident that if he has heard you, that he will bring it to pass. And he'll give you the plan. And through faith and patience, through faith and patience, through endurance, you will receive it. Sometimes, when you're starting off a certain way and you're just petitioning God, there are, there'll come a place in prayer where all of a sudden there'll be more of a declaration. You can see it in the Psalms. David would start off petitioning the Lord. And then all of a sudden he would take on another tone. 
And in that tone, he would actually be speaking as if he was the voice of God. And so there's a declaration. You know, it's different. Like if we sang that song, we were singing it recently, and the Lord kind of spoke this to me. Let thy glory fill this place. And I was thinking about, oh, Lord, let thy glory fill this place, petitioning him. But then all of a sudden down here, something else came up. And it was more of a declaration. And it changed the tone. And I began to say, let the glory of God fill this place. Do you see the difference? There's a difference. And you get that by the Spirit of God in prayer. Where you declare a thing and it shall be established. That word thing is the same Greek word as the word rhema. You declare a rhema word. That's God's word spoken to your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's not just anything that you say. Of course, our words have power. But there comes a time when God will speak a rhema word to your heart. And if you take hold of it and you receive it, and you begin to speak it and declare it. It'll come forth in authority. It's a powerful thing. Will you take on the voice of God in the earth? And you bind and you loose. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. Supplication. There is a place in prayer when you're praying the prayer of supplication where you begin to take on the very heart of God and God begins to work it in you. You know, let me give you an example. Have you ever had somebody that you were very angry with that did you wrong or did did your kids wrong? And oh my... It's hard in the flesh to overcome that. But if you will do what the word says and pray for those who despitefully use you, who persecute you, if you will do that, something will begin to happen on the inside of you. And the very heart of God, I'm thinking of someone and you know who it is. I'm telling you. Glorious things have happened because you walked in love and because you prayed forth the will of God and you prayed for that one. And destinies were changed, TK, because you did that. Destinies were changed. And sometimes it's the balance of heaven and hell for a person. But you pray that out, and all of a sudden what happens is you begin to take on God's heart for that person. And you're touched with compassion and mercy for them. And you begin to say, oh, God, bless that one. And you know when he blesses somebody, he's going to bless them spiritually before he does any other way. Of course, we know the goodness of God leads men to repentance, but goodness comes in so many different different packages oh hallelujah you begin to move in prayer from the walls of your territory into the walls of God's territory very different 
We were in ladies' prayer, what was it, last week, I think, TK, and we were praying. And, you know, a lot of times when I pray, I pray about the plan of God, the purposes of God, the will of God in the earth. I pray for different things. But primarily, I, I'm always like the heart of that, the pastor is in me. And so I'm praying for the church. I'm praying for the body. I'm praying for this company. And I do pray for the lost. But there's a different emphasis with me when I pray. And so this day we were praying for Easter Sunday. And we began, began praying for the lost, and there was such a powerful... I mean, if, if you can come to ladies' prayer on Wednesdays at 11 o'clock, you don't want to miss it, because you're going to learn how to pray there. It's the school of prayer. And some things can't be taught. They've got to be caught. So you've got to be there to do it. And you'll increase in prayer. And you'll learn how to pray in your own life, for your own family. But we were praying for the lost. And in the midst of praying for the lost, all of a sudden, down in here, I could hear the voices of mankind. TK was actually leading. I had, we, were, we were tag teaming because there's a corporate anointing here in this place. And she, I had given the mic to her, and she was praying some things out. And as she was praying them out, I was over here, and I could hear, I could hear, there's a hole right here, almost fell in it. I could hear the voices of mankind. I could hear them, and they were, they were crying out, I'm lost. I'm lost. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And I can feel that on them. And I stepped over into intercession and began to intercede. And then there was just a wave in prayer where we all began to pray and just travail in the spirit for the lost. Through that prayer of supplication, you enter into different, different um, veins and rivers and streams of prayer. And this stream took me to that place of intercession. It took our group there. And we began to pray. The prayer of supplication, I'm telling you, men of God who were used in great revivals, petition God with the prayer of supplication. Let's look at, the, at Habakkuk again in chapter 3. We're going to look at the prophet here, the prophet Habakkuk. Verse 2, it says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. I mean, God can look down on the earth today, and I'm sure he can be full of wrath over many things. But here's a prayer of petition that moves into intercession. Mercy, Lord. Revive thy work. The word revive there actually means to prepare for fresh activity. It means to revive, to bring back to life. There are some things that are dead in people's lives. There are some people that maybe they're not lost, but they've lost their way. And there needs to be revival in their life. The result of this prayer that Habakkuk prayed, Lord, revive your work. Remember mercy. We can look at verse 3 and we can see what it says. The result was, and God came. 
Heaven came down to earth. God came. God visited his people. The Holy One. His glory covered the heavens. And the earth was filled with his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand. And there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence. And fever uh, followed at his feet. So when God shows up, everything that's not of him, it's got to split. It's got to go. We can see the power of supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks present in great revivals that we have had. Where, you know, God, his will, his vision for the lost became alive in the heart of men. Looking back to Martin Luther, who lived in the 1500s, Martin Luther was actually a monk. Monks don't speak much. But God, I tell you, he was so driven in his heart to want to have relationship with God. And at that time, he, there was such erroneous medieval teachings that you had to access God by your own abilities and your own virtue by performance. And of course, when are you good enough? You're not. And so he was so frustrated that he wanted to leave the call of God upon his life because he couldn't attain it. And he cried out and he sought God. And God granted him a revelation. And that revelation is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. And it says this, By grace are you saved, through faith, and not of yourself. It is what? The gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So he learned about justification through faith. Now you've got to realize that at that time, I mean, he, he ended up later on writing the three walls of the church where he, he, he disclosed and he made known the corruption that was in the church and how the temporal powers that were set up, it was so corrupted. Everything was by buying their way in. And um, you just, only the temporal powers could make decisions. Nobody could question them. Only the temporal powers knew how to interpret scripture. And if you wanted to go to the council, only the temporal powers could call for the council. There was so much corruption. So there was no light. It was dark. So for God to grant him this revelation was definitely something of the Holy Spirit. And he moved and did great things in the earth. Then in the 1700s, the great awakening in Europe and in England and in America. John Wesley, you may have heard about him and his brother. Oh, a man of God. I'll tell you, what preceded these things, even with Martin Luther, he prayed. He made petition. He made supplication. And in, 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 in the great awakenings in Europe and in the America, in the 1700s, they spent so much time in prayer, where God would move on the hearts of men and cause them to be hungry for God. 
And these men of old would go and they would preach the gospel. They would preach this message, the message of justification through faith, that by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of works. Do you know that that set some people free? Wouldn't that set you free? Church didn't like it. There was a man named um, George uh, Whitfield. It was actually Whitefield, but they called him Whitfield. And he was, a, he was one of the partners to John Wesley. They didn't really agree on all their doctrine, but they put that stuff aside. And he was actually, I think it was 18 years younger. He was like 18, I think, and when, they, when God gathered them together, he would gather a group of people. And I think uh, John Wesley was 35. And they would pray. They would have great times of prayer where it was almost like being in the upper room. The Spirit of God would come down upon them. And they'd begin to prophesy, speak some things out, pray the prayer of supplication for the lost. They would make intercession and then a giving of thanks unto God. And God moved through those prayers. He mightily moved through those prayers. John Wesley himself, he crisscrossed England on horseback some 250,000 miles. He preached over 40,000 sermons. It was amazing the things that had happened. Then George Whitfield, he took actually... By the direction of John Wesley, he came to the Americas, colonies. And he did like seven trips here. And he, I think he was like, he maybe preached 18,000 sermons here. He was a friend of Benjamin Franklin's. And he had great influence on Benjamin Franklin. And particularly some letters that he had written to him when, when they were establishing the education system, like in Harvard and Yale, they were talking about incorporating Christianity. And, and Benjamin Franklin kind of put that maybe on page 32. And George Whitfield said, oh, no. We've got to put that first. Because if we don't put it first, it's just going to be like the Tower of Babel. It's going to fall. And so those are the things that this nation was founded on. And George Whitfield, he was an amazing man. I mean, it, it was said of him that in 1750, virtually every American loved and admired Whitfield and viewed him as a champion. He preached a thousand times every year for 30 years. He would preach two, three, four, five, six, seven times a day. Can you imagine the strength God gave his voice, the grace that God granted him? Hallelujah. It is said that he would preach and they could hear him a mile away as clear as a bell. And men would just fall. You know what? You know what was present in these revivals? Was a spirit of conviction. And that spirit of conviction would just fall. It was like Paul when he would walk the streets, Paul, and, and, and just his shadow. The presence of God would overtake people and they'd fall under the power. 
That's what it was like in these men. They would come into town and their very presence would bring this spirit of conviction, not condemnation. That's the devil. But conviction of sin. And people would fall on their knees. And they would come to Christ. And they would give their hearts. It's said that 80% of the people heard him preach at least one time. Now, he would be traveling by horseback in the cold. It wasn't comfortable. But he had such a passion of God that God placed in his heart. And one of the things that George Whitfield that so moved him and he was so impassioned with was this phrase. He would say that he would do what he was called to do because he wanted to see the souls of men filled with the life of God. That's how he was able to do everything he did. You have to read about it because I can't even articulate all the things that happened during that time. Then in the 1800s, see, God's always got something working. We think that there's darkness, but you know what? God always has light. He's always brought that forth. In the 1800s, there was a man named Charles Finney. You heard of him? That was the fourth great awakening. From 1858 to 1859, in America, he would preach, and over 600,000 people were converted and brought to Jesus. That's amazing, folks, because the population wasn't that great. But see, it wasn't so much that these men were great um, speakers or so whatever. I mean... John Wesley, he had, a, he had a heart of compassion. He would cry, sort of like Keith Hershey. And Whitfield, he was a great orator, but it wasn't the words. It was the anointing of God. The same anointing that will come upon you to equip you for your part. God so anointed these men of God. These men had three things in common. They were men of compassion, they were men of prayer, and they were men of humility. Those are three key ingredients to operating in the anointing. Compassion, prayer, and humility. Now, let's come up to the turn of the century. And I want to read something that was written by a journalist. It says, before the turn of the century, many were seeking for more of God particularly in the holiness groups. Some were offering divine healing prayer and notable results. Others were asking God for a Pentecostal outpouring of holiness and power, which was not present at that time. It was very rare. From 1901, reports of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, accompanied by speaking with other tongues and other supernatural manifestations associated with the ministry, of Charles Farham, began to circulate. God began to wake up the church. These early shockwaves reflected the spiritual ferment that was increasing in Christian holiness communities. Then in Los Angeles, a man named Frank Bartleton, he was a journalist and a holiness preacher, and he corresponded with the main leader of the great Welsh revival. That's another revival. 
that you can read about. And I'm requesting special prayer. One letter from Evan Roberts reports his response. I pray, God, to hear your prayer, to keep your faith strong. Now listen, this is what he's saying. I'm praying that God's going to hear your prayer, that God's going to keep your faith strong. Why? Because he had a vision. Was the vision bigger than him? Uh Uh-huh. I pray to keep your faith strong, and this is what he said, and to save California. From these letters, Bartleman said he received the gift of faith, the gift of faith, for revival to come. And he went on to believe that the prayers from Wells had much to do with God's outpouring in California. Later saying that present worldwide revival was rocked in the cradle of little Wells. Do not ill-esteem your life in prayer. You can travel around the world. And the words that came forth from this man of prayer to this gentleman, Frank Bartleman, this journalist who was also a preacher, inspired him with the gift of what? The gift of faith. You can inspire other people. Then what happened after that, we come up to April of 1906. What happened in April of 1906? You all know? Huh? I'm sorry? Yes, it was. There were several things that happened. First of all, we know in April of 1906, there was the great earthquake. And San Francisco was leveled. But there was also an earthquake in the spirit. And that earthquake was birthed from Azusa Street. Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Terry, did you go there? Pastors that went there, I know they did with Billy Bram. I'm sorry? Anyhow, William Seymour. William Seymour was a man of God that God sent to Azusa Street to be used of God. In such a mighty, mighty way. He had one of the strongest anointings that men ever walked in. He was a black man who was blind in one eye. And in and through his ministry, I mean the miracles, the Shekinah glory that showed up in his presence, where, you know, people would come in that would be... um, They would have like maybe club feet and their feet would straighten out. One lady came in, it's documented. She had a huge tumor in her head where she couldn't carry her head. She was a young teen or in her early 20s with her two children and he prayed for her and the tumor just shrunk before their eyes. Other men would come in with different diseases, blindness, deafness, and God would open their eyes, open their ears. Restore them to wholeness. I mean, amazing miracles. But one of the most amazing miracles was the Pentecost experience, where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You see, I think that's where the power came from. Obviously, we know when the Holy Ghost falls, the power of God falls. And so he received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He received the evidence and the ability to have a prayer language to speak in tongues. 
And because he flowed in that, God, I mean, miracles just flowed through that ministry. And it brought all manner of men. I mean, doctors, lawyers, professionals. You know who else was in those meetings? John G. Lake. You've heard of him. He was in these meetings at Azusa Street before he went to Africa and held the bubonic plague in his hand and it died in his hand. He was in those meetings. C.W. Ward, F.F. Bosworth came to Azusa Street just to sit under the anointing of Seymour. It was an amazing thing. Azusa Street was the first integrated church in America. Amazing, huh? No surprise. Because the anointing of God called to all men. Of every generation and of every race, he gathered them. And they knew what it meant to be one, one body in him. The great revivals of outpouring of the Holy Spirit from Azusa Street went around the world. Men came from other continents to sit under William Seymour and the anointing of God and what God was doing and the Pentecostal message and the Pentecostal churches were birthed from this very place because it was a move of God. It was a revival. 1906. That wasn't all that long ago. I say America is due for revival. And it's up to us to use our words to speak forth, to petition God, to move in prayer, to move in supplication for America. To move in supplication for the lost in the earth. Because the time is drawing near. We're in the 11th hour. The return of Jesus is coming soon. There's work to do. And in harvest, everybody works. If you live on a farm, in harvest, everybody works. And so you have a part to play. If you don't know what it is, ask God. Because you're going to be held accountable for it. But more than that, you're going to miss out. Because when you get in your place, there's nothing like it. There's no other place you'll be more fulfilled than the place God's called you to. He'll grace you for that race. Amen. I want to close with this. We have so many books in our bookstore. This one's called A Blaze for God. We have Revival Fires. We have so many other ones. But I love, love, love this. And I wanted it to inspire you because I know it's inspired me reading it again. A Blaze for God. Your personality so, um, so engulfed with the presence and the beauty of the Lord that others instinctively sense That God is with you. God's hand so clearly evident upon your life. And leadership. That a quiet, holy power and authority seems to just rest on you. 
a repeated anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you in your daily responsibilities. Do we all have them? And in places of authority and leadership, in your activities. Whether you are a minister or a lay person, God wants you as a leader to be truly ablaze with his Holy Spirit. Have you been hungering for more of the touch of the Holy Spirit upon you? Have you longed for God to put his hand more powerfully upon you? His seal upon your leadership and your whole life? Have you felt that God must have more of the anointing of the Spirit of God available for you and that you have more than you've normally experienced? When you read the accounts of how mightily God used men like Wesley, Whitefield, Finney, and Moody, you have wished such divine workings were more common among Christian leaders today. Have you longed to have the fire of the Spirit more evident in you, to touch your lips as you speak, your heart as you pray, and to add the extra of God's blessings on your leadership? Rejoice. God gave you that desire. When God gives you a desire, the word says he'll give you the very desires of your heart. He'll place them in you. Why? So that he can bring them to pass. Sometimes it's just a seed, a seed of a desire. But if you will follow it, it will lead somewhere. Sometimes you'll see a need. You'll say, hey, what's up with that? Why isn't that taken care of? That just may be God speaking to you for you to take care of it. Instead of complaining and wondering, what's up with that? Follow it. Watch what God does through it. Watch what God does through your hand. Watch the anointing of God increase upon your life. Watch the fruit that abounds and will be there to your account. Amen? Father, we just come to you tonight. We just want more of you. We just want more of your presence. More of your glory. To the glory is the manifested presence of God. We've prayed in ladies' prayer for years and years for the glory of God. We have a lot of seed out there. And God's shown up, but he's going to show up in a greater measure. You mark it down, an increase of his glory in this place. An increase on the individuals that make this their home. Thank you, Lord, for a hungering and a thirsting for more of you. A hungering to see the lives of people changed. To see the lost find you.
Lord, it takes a company. It takes a body. It takes the glorious church. Here we are, Lord. Use us in Jesus' name. Glory to God.